0: Amen. I think most of you know from English class that a paradox is a seeming contradiction, right? Things that seem to go together, that don't seem to go together, and yet somehow they do. That's a paradox. And probably you know that God's kingdom is full of paradoxes, full of seeming contradictions. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down, right? The way to be exalted is to humble yourself and vice versa. The way to receive is to give. Give, Jesus said, and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and and flowing over. That doesn't seem to make sense, but in God's kingdom it does. In God's kingdom, the greatest is the servant. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You're not at the top of the pyramid, but as one commentator says, you bear, bear the pyramid on your back. The greatest is the servant in God's kingdom. And this idea of paradox is evident when it comes to the account surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. It is fascinating to note the contrast between the lowly and the lofty surrounding the incarnation. There's an amazing coming together of the heavenly and the earthly, the majestic and the mundane in the birth narrative of Jesus. And we're going to look at some of those things even as we draw them from Luke chapter one and chapter two. So first of all, and the outline is there in your, in your bulletin, <clears throat> we'll look at the, loft, the lowly and lofty in the birth of Jesus, and we'll see a number of things. First, there's a natural problem with a supernatural solution. It's sadly fairly common for a couple to be unable to have children, right? the problem of infertility. It may be a problem with the man, it may be a problem with the woman, but somehow there's an inability to conceive a child. Something is amiss in the reproductive system. And so the couple live with the disappointment and sometimes the heartache of of infertility. Well, that was a problem for a Jewish couple 2,000 years ago by the name of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Although they are described in Luke chapter 1 as both righteous, we're told in chapter 1, 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, this is a common problem, especially for those who are younger in age, and they apparently had this problem throughout their, their marriage, even when they were young. And although the problem is common and natural, the solution was supernatural. Luke 1 tells us that an angel appeared To him, Zacharias, and said to him, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Infertility, a common problem, but a visit by an angel and a a message that even in her later years, she would give birth to a son, not natural, but supernatural. And so you see the lofty and the lowly coming together, the natural and the supernatural coming together in this case. But then we have a no-account town with a glorious inhabitant. Luke 126 says the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. Now, what do you think of when you think of Nazareth? Nazareth was, was uh, not a significant place. It's a little one-horse town. In fact, we might compare it to the town in which we are now sitting, Kinsers. Even for those of us who live in the area, Kinzers is, uh, you know, you drive through it very quickly. I did a little research on Kinzers. How many know anything about the history of Kinzers? I bet Gary does. I knew that hand would go up because he's a historian. David, okay. Well, let me give you a little history about Kinzers, the place where you now sit. Kinzers is an unincorporated community located in Paradise and Salisbury Townships, Lancaster County. Kinzer's was named after Harry Kinzer, a descendant of Palatine German settlers, and was founded in 1835. The compact settlement of Kinzer's is primarily in Paradise Township, extending east into Salisbury Township. Its claim to fame, the Rough and Tumble Engineers Historical Association, which is noted for its steam engine display and Thresherman's Reunion, the National Christmas Center, and the Vintage Sales Stables, named for the neighboring unincorporated village of Vintage. So it's a little sleepy town. We have one near us in Downingtown called Guthriesville. And again, you drive through it very quickly. Nazareth was kind of a no-account town, a sleepy little town. It was not a bustling metropolis. It was not a great center of learning or commerce. It really wasn't great for anything. In fact, remember Nathaniel in John chapter 1, when he is told that we think we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he makes that statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? And yet, Nazareth is the place where Jesus would be known to associate. He would be called Jesus of Nazareth. And so you have a no account town with a glorious inhabitant. Again, the lowly meets the lofty. And then we have a poor young couple with a uniquely exalted mission. Picking up on the story, the angel Gabriel comes to Nazareth to speak to a certain young woman, Mary. And we read this in Luke 1, 28 and following, we read it. And coming in, he said to her, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The angel um, And Mary said, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now Mary and Joseph were poor. How do we know that? Because when they came to offer the annual sacrifice, they did not not offer um, a lamb, but turtle doves. And the law provided that if you were too poor to afford a lamb, you could uh, offer turtle doves. Now, if you were too poor to afford even turtle doves, you you could offer fine flour. So I heard years ago, this is probably true, They were poor, but they weren't dirt poor. They could afford a lamb, uh, they couldn't afford a lamb, but they could afford turtle doves. (coughs) But here again, the lowly meets the lofty. A poor young woman from a small town is given this glorious, unique, gloriously unique mission to give birth to the son of God by supernatural conception. Now, it'll be a natural birth. That's natural, and yet we hear the language fraught with the supernatural. Son of the Most High, throne of his father David, he will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. So again, we see the mundane and the majestic brought together. Fourthly, a common camaraderie around cosmic realities. What do I mean by that? A common camaraderie around cosmic realities Luke 1, 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth, Mary is told, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And picking up at verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and the women have this camaraderie now it is not uncommon for two women who are sisters or maybe cousins to be pregnant at the same time right maybe that has happened in your experience and you can imagine the joy of that as they visit with each other and they chatter on about the anticipation of the birth of their children especially if it's a firstborn child You know, talking about is it going to be a boy or a girl and what color are you going to paint the room and all kinds of camaraderie around the upcoming birth of of the children. Well, here you have two relatives in a, a common camaraderie, but it's around cosmic realities. These women were not giving birth to ordinary children. Elizabeth was going to give birth to John the Baptist, whom Jesus described as the greatest born among women. We take that to to be he's the greatest prophet of the old covenant era. And Mary, of course, was going to give birth to the very Messiah. And so you have a common camaraderie, two women, two relatives, pregnant at the same time around cosmic realities. And then we have a crude cradle with heavenly contents Luke 2, beginning at verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in, again, the guest house. So William Hendrickson says, the commentator, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that our Lord was born in a stable, was laid down in a manger, that's a feeding trough for animals, possibly a niche carved out in a cave wall. You can't get more of an extreme contrast than that. The one who was formerly eternally in heaven, worshiped by angels, creating who created all things, created the animals, created the birds and the fish, and now he's lying weak and vulnerable in an unsanitary, smelly situation, perhaps cleaner than we imagined based on what we learned in Sunday school, but he's among farm animals in a feeding trough filled with hay. Again, the humble and the lowly and the heavenly and the lofty unite. And then we have a despised profession with an angelic visitation. We read about how the angels come to, of all people, shepherds in the field. Again, listen to what commentator William Hendrickson says about shepherds in that day. They were indeed a despised class. Not only was it difficult for them because of the very nature of their occupation to observe all the regulations of the Mosaic Law, and especially all the man-made rules superimposed upon that law, But in addition, they were suspected of confusing thine with mine. In other words, they were thieves, right? What's yours? What's mine? And um, for these reasons, they were looked down upon and were excluded from the company of those who were allowed to give testimony in the courts. When you think of them on the low rung of the, the social totem pole, who might you think of today? Well, you might, some of us might think of politicians. Some of us might think of the proverbial used car salesman or the Philadelphia lawyer, people who you don't trust. Well, shepherds were like that. Their testimony didn't count in court. They were a despised community. And yet God chose that class of men to be privileged to receive a special angelic visitation and announcement about the birth of the Messiah, God incarnate. Yet again, the lowly meets the lofty, the humble commingles with the glorious in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And so we see in the birth narrative of Jesus, the coming together of the lowly and the lofty, the earthly and the heavenly, the mundane and the majestic, the natural with the supernatural. But we ask why, why was that the case? The first answer is because In the birth of this baby Jesus, God was coming to mankind. There was a coming together of the divine and the human. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about Emmanuel, God with us. And why has God come to us? Because there was a breach in the relationship between man and God that began in the the garden, right? When our first parents sinned against God, they rebelled against God. And fellowship with God was broken. And so there's a need for man to get back to God, to reconnect to God. God is alienated from man. Man needs to be reconciled to him. Friends, that's what religion is all about. I took a few years of Latin in high school, and, and the Latin word religio, religare, from which we get religion, is a verb that means to bind. And religion is about man trying to bind himself to God. And so we have all these worldwide religions by which man is attempting to reconnect to God. He's trying to bind himself to God. And inevitably, it's by his own efforts, by his own performance, something he does or contributes to bring himself back into relationship to God. But the Bible teaches that our situation is so bad, it is so desperate, that there's nothing we can do to bind ourselves back to God. All of our righteous deeds are filthy in God's sight. There is none righteous, no, not one. So we cannot bind ourselves to God. So if God and man are ever to be reconciled, God must take the initiative to bind himself to us. And that's what the incarnation is all about. God coming to us as a man to bind himself back to us. That's why Christianity is the true religion. It's the only true religion. Every other religion posits man as being able to do something to earn his salvation. Every You can take it to the bank. Study every religion. Study every cultic perversion of Christianity, and inevitably you will find that man is doing something, contributing something to earn acceptance with God. Only Christianity says God has done it all. And it's all of grace. And I like to say that when man invents religion, he's not going to invent a religion that leaves him out of doing anything and makes him utterly helpless. That humility is not native to us. That's why Christianity, a religion of grace, is the true religion, God binding himself to man. And that's what we have. That's why we have this contrast between the lowly and the lofty because in the birth of Jesus, we have the divine becoming human. But there's more here than just God coming to man. There's a, a deliberate reason why God chose to come to a peasant girl, Mary, and why God chose to come to this despised group of men on the low rung of the social totem pole, shepherds, Do you know what it is? It's because God has especially chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. In fact, I just quoted the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 5. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And when Paul speaks to the Corinthians in his first letter, he says in chapter 1, verse 26, looking at them and saying, not many of you are wise, not many of you are mighty, not many of you are noble or well-born. This is the way it is. God has chosen to populate his church largely with the nobodies of this world. Every once in a while, there's a person who's well-born and wealthy, a person who's powerful in society, whom God converts. But you look at any church anywhere in the world— like ours, and you're gonna see mostly ordinary people. Not many well-born, not many powerful, not many of the great power brokers in society were the ordinary people of society, because that's God's will. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. Now, some who are wealthy or powerful are thankful that it says many and not any, because there are some that God chooses to save in positions of power or wealth, but not many. And so the birth narrative, with its contrasting loftiness and lowliness, teaches us that God is coming to man, and he's coming especially for the poor, for the insignificant nobodies of this world. And most of us qualify for that. These are the ones that will populate most of the churches in the world. But the birth of Jesus was not an end in itself. He was born for a purpose. I like to say he was the only one born to die. Now we are all all born and we will die, but none of us can say about ourselves, you were born for the express purpose of dying, right? But of Jesus, it can be said, he was born in order to die. The purpose of his birth, his incarnation, was to the end that he would die a very special death. And so I want to shift us from the birth narrative to the death narrative, And we're going to find here a paradoxical contrast between the lowly and the lofty. But there's a difference between the birth narrative and the death narrative. In the birth narrative, we see the naturally earthly mixed with the heavenly. In the death account of Jesus, we're going to see the wickedly earthly mixed with the holy. I think you'll see what I mean as we shift to the lowly and lofty in the death of Jesus. And I want to note 12 things, and so we're going to fly pretty quickly. First of all, the supreme ruler makes himself subject. Philippians chapter 2 says, Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, the death of a cross. Jesus is equal with God. In his pre-existence, the angels of heaven were subjected to him, and yet he stoops to subject himself to humanity and to lowly humanity and even to brutality in his suffering. And so in Jesus, the supreme ruler becomes the subjected one, the lofty and the lowly. But next, the perfectly faithful one is treacherously betrayed by one of his own. Jesus in the upper room says to the twelve, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And that one, Judas, ends up leaving the company of the twelve and going out to lead a company of armed men to the garden where he knew Jesus could be found, praying and saying to those men, whomever I shall kiss, he's the one, seize him. And the narrative goes on to say, and immediately he went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi and kissed him. Friends, that is the most treacherous, wicked betrayal in human history, the betrayal of the son of God by one of his own disciples who had been loved by him and trained by him For three years. And who is Jesus? Revelation 19.11 refers to him as faithful and true. Revelation 3.14 calls him the amen, the faithful and true witness. Amen means let it be so. It's a word of certainty. When you say amen to someone's prayer, you're affirming it and saying let it be so. Jesus is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And so here we have, The most faithful man in history, the one who is called the Amen, turned against and delivered up by the most despicable act of betrayal thinkable. The totally faithful Jesus, betrayed by the most treacherous act in history. But here's another contrast, the omnipotent one submits to capture and physical abuse. You all know the story. They seize Jesus there in the garden They capture him. He's passed between the Jews and the Romans. They spit at him. They beat him. They slap him. They scourge him. They give him blows on the face. And Jesus had all the power of heaven at his command. He was clothed in flesh, the omnipotent God, and yet he submitted to physical torture. So you have the omnipotent one, subjecting himself to cruel abuse by wicked men. Here's another contrast, incarnate truth, falsely accused. In Matthew 26, it records Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and we read in Matthew 26, 59 and 60, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward but later on two came forward and falsely testified against jesus so here the council's trying to find false testimony against jesus and finally these two men come forward and they accuse jesus saying that he he claimed that that he would destroy the temple and of course he was not claiming to destroy the temple but referring to his own body destroy this temple in three days i will raise it up and so he's falsely accused and found guilty of blasphemy. Now, who is Jesus? Jesus is incarnate truth, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in Jesus, there is perfect truthfulness, never a hint or tinge of exaggeration or embellishment in the content of what he said, in the tone in which he spoke, in the emphasis. He is pure truth, and yet he subjected himself to lies. Incarnate truth, falsely accused. Again, another contrast. But then we have the true God charged with blasphemy. In Matthew 26, 63 to 65, we read these words. But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. Blasphemy is a false claim to deity, claiming to be God when you're not. But here is one who is God, and yet he is accused of a false claim to deity. So again, The contrast between the lofty and the the wicked, the true God charged with blasphemy. Here's another one, the omniscient one mocked for ignorance. In Matthew 26, 68, the religious leaders are making fun of Jesus. And at one point they say, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? They blindfolded him, they were hitting him. Come on, tell us, if, you, if you're a prophet and you know things, tell us who's hitting you. Wow, what a contrast. Jesus is not only the great prophet that was predicted through Moses, but Jesus is the omniscient God in human flesh. And they're mocking the omniscient one as one who is ignorant and can't even tell which person is hitting him. And then we have the infinitely valuable one sold for silver. Matthew 27.3 tells us that Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Judas, as you know, was paid 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord of glory. And in remorse, he slams those coins down, goes out and hangs himself. Not in repentance, but in remorse. Well, what what are we told in in Peter's first letter? That we have been redeemed with perishable things, not with perishable things like silver and gold from our futile way of life, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The price for our purchase was the precious blood of Jesus. And yet, Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the infinitely valuable one sold for silver. And then we have the king of kings scorned as an imposter, Matthew 27, 27 to 30. Jesus is on the cross, not, well, not yet. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. The Roman soldiers mocked Jesus' kingship as a joke. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They gave him a reed in place of a scepter. And yet here is the one who is not only the king, he is the king of kings. According to Psalm 2, he, along with his father, regard the nations as a drop from the bucket. Jesus, the king of kings, the ultimate sovereign of the universe, is mocked as an imposter king. And then the sovereign ruler subjects himself to a proud Roman procurator, a proud Roman leader. Jesus is standing before Pilate in John chapter 19, who very much is convinced that Jesus is, is innocent. But we read this dialogue in John 19:9. 9. Pilate says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So here we have the sovereign ruler, Jesus, subjecting himself to a proud Roman procurator. The Lord of heaven, despised by the dregs of human society. Jesus hangs on a cross, right? (laughs) One of the men, gratefully, acknowledged who he was, and repented. And that thief was with him that day in paradise. But the other thief does not repent. The other thief reviles Jesus, Luke 23, 39. He does so with these words. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us in his unbelief. And so here was a a criminal, probably an insurrectionist, rightly dying a death penalty for his crimes, the dregs of human society, despising the Lord of heaven. And then we have the author of life killed in place of a murderer, right? When the people are given a choice, who to release? And Pilate, of course, convinced that Jesus was innocent, very much wanted to release Jesus. He made every effort possible to try to exonerate Jesus, but the crowd would not have it. and they cry out, "Give us Barabbas!" A man who was on death row for as an insurrectionist, a murderer. And so the author of life, Jesus, is killed in place of a murderer. In the book of Acts, Peter is preaching to a Jewish crowd and he says, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life. They traded in the prince of life for a murderer. And then finally, the despised and murdered son of God raised to the heights of glory. In Philippians 2, after it says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross, The next verse says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see the earthly and the natural commingled with the heavenly in the birth of Jesus. But we see here the the earthly and the vile commingled with the heavenly and the holy surrounding the death of Jesus There's a contrast between the birth narrative and the death narrative. The birth narrative, which we are celebrating this time of year, is all about adoration and celebration and joyous anticipation. But as the baby grows to manhood, he conducts his ministry. His light shines into the darkness of the human situation. The mood changes And so the tone of the death narrative differs greatly from the tone of the birth narrative. It shifts to a mood of accusation and vilification and condemnation. To put it bluntly, the one time the human race, and we are represented in that human race as sons and daughters of Adam, the one time the human race had an opportunity to get its hands on God, we killed him. What does that tell us about our natural situation? And that death of Jesus can't be blamed on one ethnicity. God arranged it so that both the Jews and the Gentiles, who represent the rest of the world, were implicated in the death of Jesus. The Jews accused him, but the Romans put him to death. We, as part of this human race, killed God in the flesh. And what does this teach us? When Jesus came to earth, he was not merely coming to lowly man, but to wickedly sinful man. Every one of us is born with a heart that is hostile to God and in need of being reconciled to God. And how can that happen? How can we as lost rebel sinners be restored to a relationship to God? We're going to see one more point to wrap it up. We've seen the lowly and the lofty in the incarnation. We've seen the lowly and the lofty in the death of Jesus. But now we're going to see the lofty and lowly in the invitation of Jesus. We've seen that the high and exalted Lord of glory comes to earth in lowliness in his birth. And we've seen that the holy Lord is subjected to the lowly vile and wicked in his death. That relates very directly to our situation. The whole purpose of Jesus coming from a high and holy place to a very lowly place was to lift us up to a very high place. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about financial giving, but he relates it to Jesus when he says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I want you to see the parallel. Jesus was rich. He was in heaven. He was worshipped by the created angels. He was rich in heavenly glory, sharing that glory with his Father. But he became poor, impoverished in his humanity, and subjected to all that he was to the point of death on a cross, so that he might be lifted up again, and restored to glory with his Father. He was high, was brought low, so that he might be brought high again. I want us to see the parallel to our situation and how it relates to us getting reconnected to God. The pattern that Jesus followed, being rich, becoming poor, that he might be rich again, is the pattern that we need to follow and being made right with God. Jesus says these words in John 12, 23 to 26, as the cross is getting near, it's looming large in his consciousness, he's aware it's coming. And he says in John 12, 23 and following, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life, loses it. And who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus had come from the height of heaven. To die a lowly death that he might be lifted up to heaven again from high to low to high again and he says here that's the very same pattern we need to follow in getting right with god through him we are naturally high in our own eyes the bible says we are proud and lifted up in our own eyes we are all by nature self-centered. We live for ourselves. We do our will in our way for our pleasure, for our glory. We are all proud and lifted up in our own eyes. And according to Jesus, we must be brought low. He says you've got, you've got to lose your life in order to gain it again. What does he mean by that? What life are we to lose? We are to lose that self-will self-centered, self-directed, prideful life by which we're living independently of God. You've got to lose your life and die to that life if you are to find life indeed. When we let go of that life of self-centeredness, self-directedness, that's called repentance. And then we need to turn to Jesus by faith and put our trust in him. And then we're lifted up and exalted to life indeed, which is eternal life. And so the same pattern that Jesus followed from high to low to exaltation again is the pattern we need to follow in coming to him. We need to recognize that we are high and lifted up in our own eyes. We need to be humbled. We need to lose our life in order to find it by faith in Jesus alone. Let's pray and then sing a final song from the songbook. Lord Jesus, thank you that though you were rich and could have remained in heaven where you were worshiped by angels, you voluntarily came to earth as a man, humbling yourself to the point of death on a cross, that you might be exalted again to the right hand of your father, but that you might bring us with you by granting us repentance enabling us to lose our life in order to gain true life and thank you that as a result of your incarnation and your death on a cross we can live with you forever in heaven and eventually on a new earth we thank you and pray in